Welcome to the audio podcast, the weekly sermon of the First Presbyterian Church of Brooklyn. We continue our multi-access worship both online and our recently renovated sanctuary. Sunday morning service is in person at 11 a.m. and we are live on firstchurchbrooklyn.org as well as the church Facebook page at facebook.com slash firstchurchbrooklyn. All one word, no spaces. Now, this week's message. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Oh God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I have chosen this morning to focus on a pledge that I made about six months ago for the Presbyterian Peace Fellowship. I've been a member of the Presbyterian Peace Fellowship for nearly 40 years an organization that, for my money, is one of the most important kind of peripheral institutions of the Presbyterian Church USA. I encourage you to take a look at their website if you have an opportunity. The pledge that I took a few months ago was to preach at least once before the end of 2022 on a theme of nonviolence that is a part of the work of the Presbyterian Peace Fellowship with a goal of sending our combined honoraria for these opportunities to preach to the PPF to support it and to hopefully raise about $2,500. So you all are a part of my making good on this pledge. I'm grateful for that opportunity. And grateful also to be with you and to have spent a little bit of time on your website. So I went and watched uh, one of your videos on your history, learned about Dr. Clark and uh, his bold uh, decisions to stand up during the debates around evolution versus scriptural inerrancy in the early 1900s. I was most impressed in that video with the remarkable kind of diversity in every way that I saw among those who were narrating that particular event. And then I spent some time listening to your music, which blows me away and which I wish I could be there to participate in in person. I am a person who carries just about every kind of unearned privilege that one can articulate. I am white in a culture that favors whiteness and institutionalizes white privilege. I am male in a patriarchal society. I am heterosexual in a society that clearly struggles with those who do not describe themselves as heterosexual. I am cisgendered. I'm comfortable with the gender I was assigned at my birth. I've been raised in Western culture and educated in Western institutions in pretty much every way, and my list could go on and on and on, I am part of the dominant culture. And the disease that we carry in the dominant culture, in my experience, I'll speak for myself, is that um, dominant culture participation blinds us to the realities of those who are not like us. It's not my job as a white man who carries all of that unearned privilege to understand what, what the world is like or how people experience the world who do not look like me. It's my assumption that they will have to figure things out and get along with me. There's not even an assumption in it, really. It's just the water in which I swim. And so I have experienced that throughout my adult life over the last four decades, I've really got, been in a constant journey to kind of pull back the scales from my own eyes and to learn to see the world through the perspective of others, and to learn empathy, 
and as insofar as possible to try and experience and stand with those who do not carry a simil similar level of dominant culture privilege. And my expectation, I think, when I began that journey some 40 years ago was that I could do it kind of as a one-off, that if I did my work five years down the road, 10 years down the road, somewhere at some point, I would be able to say, I have figured these things out. But in fact, my experience has been just the opposite. Instead, each time I peel back those blinders a little bit, a little bit more, I discover that there's more assumption of privilege that I hadn't fully examined, more things that I didn't even, I wasn't even really aware of in my own life that are markers of that privilege. And I say all of that because one of those markers for me in the last two years since the kind of dual pandemics of the COVID-19 pandemic and the um, the pandemic around structural white supremacy and the awakening that the country went through in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and the uprisings that took place following George Floyd's murder. Um, in the last two years, as those two things have combined, they have begun to open my eyes to a new kind of assumption that I was carrying. And that was a discomfort with the notion of abolition of our prison industrial complex or defunding the police. Those words made me anxious. In spite of the fact that I have four decades of honest, hard work as an activist, a social justice activist, I was surprised at my own discomfort as those words became kind of forward in our conversations as a society across the country in the summer and fall of 2020. And so I chose, as a result of that, to try and explore what exactly it was that was making me uncomfortable. Last year, I participated in a workshop that we took, a group of us uh, took from an online resource that I highly recommend to you called Abolition Journal. And it was a six-week-long class that had phenomenal amounts of information on the, aboli the abolition of prisons and all of the things that are tied up in that complex knot. What is it that made me so uncomfortable? I kept thinking about this. Why was it that I was so unprepared to think about abolition? Actually, I have been kind of priding myself throughout my life on my ability to be forward-thinking in a peace and justice orientation. So early on in my ad young adult life, I was prepared to fully embrace the notion of the abolition of war that the Presbyterian Peace Fellowship espoused. And I've followed a similar leading on all kinds of things that have been kind of a step ahead of where our dominant culture seems prepared to go. But for some reason, it was that language about abolition of prisons that caught me up short. What would we do if we couldn't put people who cause other people harm behind bars, I wondered. And so I started this course in large measure as an effort to try and help myself to understand what those concerns are and to become more facile, more comfortable with the language around abolition and to try and understand that set of questions through the perspective of others who have lived the questions of the impact of the prison industry far more deeply than I have. So I want to pause there and draw in our scripture for this week that I trust has now been read to you all. I chose to use Matthew 25, which has long been one of my favorite texts, long before the Presbyterian Church USA adopted it as its kind of uh, 
its kind of central purpose and unifying uh, missional theme. And so for those of you who don't know, the Presbyterian Church USA has said that we embrace Matthew 25, the entire chapter, as a call from Jesus to move into the work of dismantling structural racism and ending systemic oppression and poverty and creating and nurturing vital congregations that have the capacity to do those first two things. And so um, I just want to share a few thoughts about not just the passage you heard read this morning, the third story in Matthew 25, but about how I understand this entire text. And I'll confess to you that my understanding comes from uh, spending considerable amount of time in Guatemala over the years. And it was Guatemalan pastors who first opened my eyes to the ways in which I understood this text that were so different from the ways they understood this text. So the chapter, Matthew 25, begins with the story of the 10 bridesmaids. You'll remember five bridesmaids who trimmed their lamps and had plenty of oil as the night drew on before the bridegroom came to begin the party, and five others who were described as foolish bridesmaids and who did not have enough oil and who begged the first five to share their oil. And the first five said, no, we can't do that for you, for we were prepared And the answer to that story as it comes to a close is, stay awake, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour that things may come to a head. Well, I confess that I've struggled with this text for a very long time in my life. It always seemed to me that those first five were pretty selfish. And the person who's really unlocked this for me in the last several years uh, was actually, this is long after I spent time in Guatemala, was a colleague of mine from uh, the offices in Kentucky in the Presbyterian Church USA. In a Bible study we were doing at one point, he said, you know, as a white man, I wonder if this doesn't echo some of what I have heard from my friends and colleagues who are African-American who say to me, I can't do your work for you. The work of confronting racism is your work to do. It's not my work to do for you. And when he said that, it was like a light switch turned on in my head. Like, oh yes, Sometimes it's not about sharing or deciding whether or not I can be helpful to you. It's about insisting that you have work to do in order for us to be in relationship with one another. Okay, so set that aside. Actually, one more thing about that text. Uh, the the uh, theologian and activist Ched Myers, who is a, both a friend and a mentor to me, has done a lot of work on this text and has suggested that there's another way to understand that text which is that it may also just be a question of saying, be ready because there's something coming next in the text that is very powerful. So what's next? Well, what's next is that story that many of us grew up calling the parable of the talents. Parable of the talents is a story that uh, a, a landowner or wealthy landowner was traveling so much that he needed to uh, share responsibility for his lands and property. So he called three slaves to him and said, I'm going to entrust you with my property. To one person, he gave five talents, to another two, and to a final one talent. And he said, care for this, and when I come back, there will be an accounting. And sure enough, when he returned, the first slave went to him and said, Master, um, I have doubled your, your money. And just to be clear, talents here clearly meant money. It is not the way we understand the word talents today. A talent was a unit of money that, va- that was, would have been valued at about 15 years labor for a typical laborer. So five talents would have been 75 years labor or roughly two lifetimes of work at that time. So a, a vast amount of money. And this 
this person goes and says, Master, I did what you asked me to do. I've doubled your money. Here it is. And the second also came forward and said, Master, I too have doubled your money. And the master says to both of them, well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in these few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And then he turns to the third slave who says, master, I knew you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I took your money because I was afraid and I hid it in the ground. Here you have what is yours. And his master responds, you knew, did you, that I was a, I was a, uh, a harsh man and I reap where I do not sow and I gather where I do not scatter seeds. Then you should have at least invested my money with the bankers. So take this one and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And for years, I was raised on this story probably the way many of you were. I heard it preached on a regular basis that this was all about using my talents for the service of God and the, and the kingdom of God. But you know, friends, it makes no sense to understand this story that way because then God comes off as this harsh taskmaster where he's, he's not portrayed God, they, he, she, is not portrayed in that way in any other place in the New Testament. So why in this place would that be? And it was these Guatemalan pastors who opened my eyes and said, this is not an allegory. This is not a story about the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't say at the beginning of this story, the kingdom of heaven is like. It says, it is as if a man going on a journey summoned his slaves. This is a story about the way things were in first century Palestine. And the only way to double one's money was to lend money at exorbitant rates of interest backed by the deed to small plots of land and then to take that land and add it to the master's holdings. And the only way really to pull that off was to take advantage of one's weaker neighbor. So this is not a story, in my judgment, about the way things ought to be in the kingdom of heaven. This is a story about the harsh reality of the way things were. Now, if you take that, be ready, and then this story about just how disturbing things were, it leads right into this passage that's before us this morning. And that passage begins with, um, when the Son of Man comes in all of his glory, he will gather all of the nations before him. He will sit on his glorious throne and he will judge those nations and separate them one from another as a, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And the sheep he will place at his right hand, the goats at his left, and he will say to the sheep, come, O blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you all know this passage, right? And you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was sick and you came to me. I was, I was naked and you clothed me and I was in prison and you visited me. And they will say to him, Master, when did we see all of that? And he says to them, I tell you when you did it to one of the least of these, my sisters and brothers, you did it to me. And then he has a similar conversation with the goats and says to them, you did not care for me in my time of need when you did not care for the least of, the, of those among you. And therefore, you are not welcome in this new thing that we are creating. In effect, this is a story about new rules. Jesus is saying, this is the way you think the world works. The way that we, the way we all know the world works is, the, is that some people take advantage of others in this previous story, and they have phenomenal amounts of wealth. And I'm telling you, in the world we're creating, it's new rules. And we're going to place these who are most marginalized in the very center of our midst. So, if that's true, focusing just on that little portion, I was in prison and you visited me, 
What are the implications for us as we look at the situation today? Well, the situation today is that we have, I, I think the current statistics are well over a quarter of the world's imprisoned population is in prisons here in the United States. And a significant majority of those who are in prison in the United States are people of color, even though they are a significant minority in our overall population. And it has become an industrial enterprise. We pay for-profit corporations to incarcerate people. The carceral system is designed at every turn to disadvantage people of color. And so it's my belief that in this moment in time, the call that this text places on us is to be involved in a conversation about abolition. There it is, that word that made me squirm, continues to make me squirm to some extent, abolition of the prison industrial complex that we all have come to assume is the only way things can be. Listen to these words from Angela Davis in her marvelous book that I recommend to you called Our Prisons Obsolete. In most circles, prison abolition is simply unthinkable and implausible. Prison abolitionists are dismissed as utopians and idealists, whose ideas are at best unrealistic and impractical, impracticable, and at worst, mystifying and foolish. This is a measure of how difficult it is to envision a social order that does not rely on the threat of sequestering people in dreadful places designed to separate them from their communities and families. The prison is considered so natural that it is extremely hard to imagine life without it. Well, that's exactly what I was discovering about myself. It was hard to imagine life without it. Rabbi Arthur Waskow, a remarkable force for justice and good in the world who is the founder and director of the Shalom Center in Philadelphia, and another good friend of mine, says it this way, quote, forget about reform. It's time to talk about abolishing jails and prisons in American society. Still, abolition? Where do you put the prisoners, the criminals? What's the alternative? First, let me say, having no alternative at all would create less crime than the present criminal training centers do. Second, the only full alternative is building the kind of society that does not need prisons, a decent redistribution of power and income, so as to put out the hidden fire of burning envy that now flames up in crimes of, pro of property, both burglary by the poor and embezzlement by the affluent, and a decent sense of community that can support, reintegrate, and truly rehabilitate those who suddenly become filled with fury or despair and that can face them not as objects, criminals, but as people who have committed illegal acts, as have almost all of us. I think Arthur Waskow gets it right. I think we have a task of remarkable imagination that we must take on in order to think about what it could look like to abolish the prison complex on which we all so clearly depend at this point. The course that I took that I mentioned to you last year from the abolition journey helped me to articulate. I, at the end of the course, I sat down with no resources in front of me and said, okay, now what does the word abolition mean? And here's what I came up with. I described it, having taken the class, as a continuum of decarceration. And I had six points. Minimizing police interactions in the community through mutual aid 
and new community practices. In other words, what would it look like for us to depend on one another instead of assuming that the only people who can respond are people who come with a gun and to enforce a law and a system of incarceration? Second, decriminalizing specific acts, specifically drug possession and drug use. And there's clearly a movement to move in that direction. Witness Joe Biden's recent action to decriminalize those who have been incarcerated around, around the possession of marijuana or sale of marijuana. Third, strengthening education, healthcare, housing security, access to work, paying a living wage, etc. right? We need to do those things that actually create genuine alternatives in our communities. Fourth, intentionally putting significant resources behind reparative justice initiatives. What if we spent a significant amount of money, not on incarcerating and punishing people, but rather on healing and efforts to try and create reconciliation. And I'll finish with a story about that in just a moment. And then uh, fifth, closing prisons and developing good jobs for those currently employed in those prisons. Let's face it, the prison industry is one of the largest social welfare industries in our country today. It's designed particularly to seduce rural communities across the country as clean industry and provide good paying jobs to lock other people up and incarcerate them. And then finally, there's a component of this that also has to be about rethinking gender and gender identity about who's incarcerated and how they are incarcerated. And there's a whole world to unpack there that I will not try and go into this morning, but that I highly commend to you because I think it's critically important. So not bad, huh? I can try and articulate now quite a bit on my own and without the help of other folks who are putting the words in my mouth. And now the question is, what does it look like to put it into practice? And so I'll finish with this story, also from Angela Davis's book that I found very moving. This is the last page of her book called Our Prisons Obsolete. In 1993, when South Africa was on the cusp of its transition, Amy Beale was devoting a significant amount of her time as a foreign student to the work of rebuilding South Africa. Nelson Mandela had been freed in 1990, but had not yet been elected president. On August 25th, Beale was driving several black friends to their home in Guguletu when a crowd shouting anti-white slogans confronted her, and some of them stoned and stabbed her to death. Four of the men participating in the attack were convicted of her murder and sentenced to 18 years in prison. In 1997, Linda and Peter Beale, Amy's mother and father, decided to support the amnesty petition the men presented to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The four apologized to the Beals and were released in July 1998. Two of them, Easy Nofemela and Entobeco Penny, later met with the Beals who, despite much pressure to the contrary, agreed to see them. According to Nofemela, he wanted to say more about his own sorrow for killing their daughter than what would have been possible during the Truth and Reconciliation hearings. I know you lost a person you love, he says he told them during that meeting. I want you to forgive me and take me as your child. The Beals, who had established the Amy Beale Foundation in the aftermath of their daughter's death, asked Nofemela and Penny to work at the Guguletu branch of the foundation. Nofemela became an instructor in an after-school sports program and Penny an administrator. 
In June 2002, they accompanied Linda Beale to New York, where they all spoke before the American Family Therapy Academy on reconciliation and restorative justice. In a Boston Globe interview, Linda Beale, when asked how she now feels about the men who killed her daughter, said, quote, I have a lot of love for them, unquote. After Peter Beale died in 2002, she bought two plots, plots of land for them in memory of her husband so that Nofemela and Penny can build their own homes. A few days after the September 11 attacks, the Beals had been asked to speak at a synagogue in their community. According to Peter Beal, quote, we tried to explain that sometimes it pays to shut up and listen to what other people have to say, to ask, why do these terrible things happen instead of simply reacting, unquote. Friends, as we approach the season of Advent, a time of new beginnings and reimaginings and awakenings, I invite you into a deep reflection about your own feelings about how policing takes place in our communities and what it means to enforce a system of incarceration that is so deeply and obviously unjust. And I look forward to further and deeper conversation with you. You are welcome to reach out to me and uh, folks in your congregation know how to reach me. And I'm always happy to engage, especially when I am preaching to a congregation I've never met from so far away. So blessings on you this morning during worship and over the coming days and weeks as we approach Advent and the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we gather this morning. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust you were fed as well as challenged by the content. This audio archive supplements a video library of the entire service. The video, along with music from our internationally recognized gospel choir, is available on firstchurchbrooklyn.org. We provide multi-access worship options both in person and online Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. We are live in the sanctuary, as well as firstchurchbrooklyn.org and the church Facebook page at facebook.com slash firstchurchbrooklyn. All one word, no spaces. Visit firstchurchbrooklyn.org for more information on both online and in-person worship. Remember that now, as always, you are loved.